0: Hi, it's Mark Sisson. Welcome to the Primal Blueprint Podcast. It's time for another show dedicated to the world of keto. Check out ketoreset.com for details about my New York Times bestselling book and send your questions to info at ketoreset.com. Let's get right into it, man. What's what's some of your reflections about that? Because I remember last, uh, I think it was last summer when you were Uh, having that epiphany that you film for Instagram, that you're, you know, you're not even connected to your own community, but you're traveling around the world being the, uh, you know, connecting on that level. And now everything's changed.
1: Well, look, I mean, we, we know that that social ties and, and community, it's, it's very, very important. You know, that's those flesh and blood relationships and not only having a neighborhood or a community in which you're helping people and people are helping you and you're looking people in the eye and touching people and having dinner parties and, you know, and and, and helping your neighbors move and, you know, and and being involved with supporting local restaurants and the local community and having a place where your children can have friends and even having a, a local envirobiome biome that, that really corresponds well to to you, and being able to you know eat foods that are local and seasonal. You know, there, there's there's so many benefits to to being connected uh, to to your community, and there, there's a lot of dark sides to so-called hypermobility. You know, disruption of circadian rhythm. And you know loss of of negative ions uh, when we're disconnected from the planet Earth that affects our electrochemical balance of our cells. Uh, um, you know the the exposure to a lot of evolutionary mismatches that you might be able to control in your own environment, right? Like whether it be uh, you know Wi-Fi or or modern LED fluorescent lighting or the quality of the water that you drink, et cetera that, you know, kind of fly out the window if you're living out of hotel rooms. You know, we, there, there's a, there's so many benefits to, to living most of your life kind of rooted in a community with, you know, let's say brief, brief bouts of travel, right? Like maybe a, an annual trip to Hawaii or something like that. And so, uh, so for me to press pause on, you know, a lot of the speaking, a lot of the conferences, you know, a lot of the stuff that, that, I've been doing for the past several years and before that you know it was it was you know something you're very familiar with packing a bike onto an airplane to go race you know 20 times a year you know and that's my that's my life for like uh 20 years you know Uh, on an airplane typically anywhere from from five to ten times a month you know gone every week pack unpack disconnect come back try and fix all the damage get my circadian rhythm realigned and then Head out again, right about when I'm when I'm all fixed up. And and so being on the home front, you know, from a from a health standpoint and also a family connectivity standpoint and a and a stress standpoint has been amazing. The ironic thing is that um, you know, despite being at home and not traveling, I'm not connected to my local community because we can't go out. <laughs> you know, okay can't go to church and and can't go to restaurants and, you know, none of the farmer's markets are up. And so, yeah, so it's kind of weird in that, you know, you know, there's a lot of wonderful time spent with the family and a lot of, a lot of wonderful health implications and, and, you know, sleep is fantastic. You know, everything's wonderful, except, you know, I'm I'm still missing that one component of being home that, that I think would be one of the better components of being stuck at home, which is just being able to, you know, have people over more often for dinner parties and you know go to restaurants in the local community and go to farmers markets and and go bring stuff out to the homeless and you know they're just you know we just can't do some of that stuff right now so you know so it's kind of weird it's, it's kind of like a half ass scenario of, of being at home in the community you know
0: yeah i'm trying to look at the the, the positive side of this uh, this pause button on on the globe and it seems to me that it's so easy to get locked into patterns and become familiar with a certain mode. Like you described of getting on another plane and packing up the bike and going, going to the next race and constantly being, you know, hyper stimulated with new environments, new cities, and it's exciting and fun and it keeps you, keeps you engaged. And then you get used to that mode to the extent that you, you know, forget the value of that simple community life and that, that home-based uh, experience that we're now forced to uh, get thrust into, and maybe we can kind of get used to this in, in a certain way, where it, it lingers in, in the in the uh, in the main focus rather than being an afterthought.
1: Yeah, you know, I think a lot of people are going to realize, you know, whether it shifts in the way that we educate our children, you know, taking advantage of some of the beauties of social media and technology and the internet, you know, being able to learn from the comforts of our own homes. I think that that education might be somewhat disrupted by this scenario. You know, we might see the homeschooling percentage of Americans, you know, go from whatever it's at right now. I think I want to say it's somewhere between like, uh, gosh, I I think it's below 10%. You know, I I would expect it to to significantly rise as parents realize, holy cow, kids can learn from home and, and they're almost like happier doing it. Um, I think it's going to change uh, the way that we meet, right? We know that uh, that Zoom stock has, has absolutely soared because so many companies are, you know, meeting virtually. And and again, you don't know, get that same type of, you know, fun, like like for my company at Keon, right? Like everybody meets for meditation, sitting every morning cross-legged on the floor at the offices and, and they're joking and, you know, and having lunches together in the, in the lunchroom. And, you know, and, and so... A lot of that is not happening, um, but at the same time, you know there's a lot of employees being just as productive working from home as they as they would be at the office and you know when we look at at conferences right i've already taken part in in two conferences where i 've spoken, but i haven't gotten on a plane you know I was pretty much just like in my underwear at home um, you know popped up to see my kids after I gave my talk you know to have lunch with them and you know, I think, I think people will realize that, you know, despite there being some disconnectedness from a flesh and blood standpoint with working remotely or being educated remotely, I do think that that we'll see a little bit of a disruption in terms of of how much we might feel pressured to commute to work or to fly across the country or across the pond for a conference or, um, you know, or or, or make it to the school bus every morning at 7.45 a.m. You know, I I think some of that stuff will change uh, ultimately uh, for the better.
0: Oh my gosh, yeah. I mean, I've been sort of in this mode for many, many years where I have a blend of, Uh, you know, home-based work, self-starter, self-directed, and then going off and uh, communing with uh, a larger organization that's more structured. And, you know, the bouncing back and forth, I think there's, uh, it's all a matter of of striking that important balance. But, you know, some of these institutions like school with the bells ringing and all that crazy stuff, yeah, they're going to have to start thinking twice about that because there's so much wasted energy and wasted productivity just from, you know, towing the line. And, punching the clock or what have you. I know there's um, the, school, uh, the schools up in um, Lake Tahoe uh, did some calculations because they were you know, playing sports against uh, schools that were far away and taking the bus and wasting the whole Friday anyway when there was a football game and they decided to go to a four-day school week. And you don't even lose that much time because when you talk about the nutrition and the lunch break and the, the commuting time on the, on the school bus, um, you just add like another hour and a half to the school day, and then you got a three day weekend pretty simple
1: yeah, not to mention that the, that the you know in a classroom, the pace of learning is generally the the pace of you know the entire rest of the class versus the pace of the individual child. The subjects that are being learned don 't necessarily fall into the you know the passion or the skill set of of the child who 's learning you know the set curricula that 's been developed and you know if you read a book like free to play or unschooling to university it's typically around age 13 where the joys of all the social aspects and perhaps some of the sports and recess aspects and some of those some of those funner aspects of school begin to be overridden by tests by quizzes by homework by learning matter that in no way is is of interest to the child or makes sense to them and so you know, that, that's, that was one of the reasons that, you know, in, in fifth grade, I gave my kids the option to stop going to school and to start more of a scenario of just life based education. You know, whether it be, you know, cooking at home with mom and dad or, you know, having a jiu-jitsu instructor come up to the house or building a tree fort or, you know, ever you know, they're, they're, they're at home right now, make, you know, they're out in the driveway literally right now making stop motion videos with, you know, some computer program they have and a, and a phone and a bunch of clay and, you know, they're making a movie, you know, and then tonight they're, they're making sushi, right? They're, they, they have this whole sushi recipe planned out and they're making all these hand rolls and everything and then they're going to watch Jiro Dreams of Sushi and, and learn through a documentary a little bit about like hard work and, and legacy and food. And, and you know, and, and I think that type of educational scenario for a child is just amazing versus having to, you know, hop on a bus and go to school every day and learn a set curricula.
0: Right. No, you you were homeschool all the way through, and then your children, did they go to school initially, and then when they were uh, just recently, you gave them a choice? Is that how this rolled?
1: Well, I was homeschooled, yeah, K through 12, um, in a more traditional homeschooling environment. You know, homeschooling traditionally is you, know, you got a bunch of kitchen or you know books, and you're sitting around the kitchen table with mom or dad sometimes. You know, you're reading, you're doing your math, you're doing your English, you're doing your writing, you're doing, you know, your your, your, your art and social studies and, and everything else. And you're just kind of replicating largely what you'd see in a, in a public school or private school from home. Um, And and that's, that was kind of my homeschooling scenario. And, you know, I had a few tutors here and there. I had like a calculus tutor and, you know, I had a violin teacher and, you know, there's, there's always third parties that come in to help educate aside from mom and dad. And then we were part of a homeschooling co-op. So, you know, we had like our own basketball team and we had like a chess club and we had, you know, we had different, um, you know, social events every week, whether it be swimming or, um, you know, library time or, you know, field trips out to the local apple farm or whatever. And, um, you know, with, with what I'm doing with my kids is, uh, we, we homeschooled in the first couple of years, kind of using that type of model, like a set curricula, you know, gathered around the table with mom and dad. And, and we, you know, my wife, Jess, and I both realized that, you know, it, it really wasn't our calling to be sitting there for four to six hours with the kids at the kitchen table every morning. Like I couldn't work and, and <laughs> imagine she, she that doesn't, she doesn't really have the heart of a teacher. You know, she, she, she never liked school, you know, and my wife's actually dyslexic. And so she's not going to be teaching reading and writing or correcting essays or, you know, anything like that. And, you know, she's wonderful at teaching. You know, art and and cooking and and gardening and animal husbandry. And you know, she grew up as a rancher girl, and so you know, those are the things that uh, she loves to teach. That the boys still do with her. And then for me, you know, again with with the nature of my my travel schedule up to late, and you know, the fact that there are there are certain things that I feel called to do, and certain things I don't feel called to do. Um, you know, we we decided we'd find a really good private school, and so in second grade. Uh, our kids started private school, and then, you know, I just kind of observed from behind the scenes for about uh, four years, you know, and, and and you know, continue to read and study educational models and realized as they were, you know, going into fifth grade that uh, I wasn't doing them the best service. Even though they were going to a really good private school, they were still experiencing a lot of those, those same issues, you know, tests, homework, quizzes that in, in no way related to their passions or their interests, learning, you know... Mm-hmm. A, a, the same pace as the rest of the classroom, having to get the bus every morning, disrupting the circadian rhythm, um, and, and really when they got home from school, not having the time to really delve into the things that they were truly passionate about because they were so overloaded with tests and homework. And, and so I, uh, I told them, look, you guys don't have to go back to sixth grade if you don't want to. I'll, I'll create a supportive structure for, he, for you here at home, and uh, we can unschool, meaning that if you want to learn math, you know, go out and build a tree for it learn geometry, learn angles, learn woodworking, you know, counts as art and architecture a little bit because you're designing and, you know, using Google SketchUp and, and, uh, um, or or you want to, you know, from a social studies or language standpoint, you know, study Japanese cuisine for three months and learn some Japanese phrases and learn how to work with sushi and learn some Japanese art and learn some plating techniques and learn some chemistry in the kitchen and so that's that's more of what unschooling is, you know, whereas homeschooling is a little bit more of a set curriculum, a little more organized. Unschooling is simply paying attention to what a child's interests and passions are and then surrounding them with as many life based experiences as possible that allow them to pursue those passions. And um, so that's a, that's what we do with the kids now.
0: Oh my gosh, it sounds wonderful. I think there's a lot of parents out there that maybe don't quite have the guts to go for it because it seems like such an extreme departure from... Uh, what we 've been socialized to think is important, and uh, now, in the age of the, uh, the the helicopter parent and the the college bribing, you can see that the parents are are so worked up about whether their kid 's going to fall behind one inch if they don 't get the uh, extreme tutoring or the the most advanced sporting experience. but hopefully, with some of this stuff blowing up in everyone 's face, we can start to think a little more creatively and perhaps taking this, uh, taking this theme all the way up into adult life where, you know, the kid's not obligated to, uh, jump into some, you know, fixed career track, but they can do, uh, exploration all the way up to, uh, Ben Greenfield's age. How old are you,
1: man? Uh, I'm I'm 38. And, and look, there, there are some practical considerations here, right? Like, um, you know, there, there are still state requirements that, you know, like Washington State, where we live, there are twelve core curricula: math, social studies, reading, writing, etc., that our children must demonstrate proficiency in every year, either via a standardized test or via assessment forms that mom and I submit to the state, so that our kids aren't labeled as, you know, little little truants. And <laughs> um, you know, and every every state has certain core curricula that you must demonstrate. And and I, I think. You know, I, th- I think it's prudent that you do, because, you know, you could just see, like, my kids, if they're super interested in art, just, like, becoming little savants in art all day long, but, you know, when they're 18, maybe feeling a little bad that dad didn't fill them in, that they might need some math skills, right? And and so, you know, there 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 is something to be said for ensuring that they satisfy a core curricula, but like I said, you know, like, whatever, um, you know, building a tree for it can be math, social studies, art. Architecture you know and and, and there, there's, there's a lot that you can kind of creatively categorize life based experiences into when it comes to those core curricula and then also you know i, I don 't necessarily completely decry higher education. I think some type of standardized higher education is something that's beneficial to society. To demonstrate, for example, that that a physician who might be operating on a heart didn't just go to iTunes University to learn that, <laughs> but but actually has a diploma and satisfied a, a core curricula that's standardized by a medical certifying body before they actually do something that, that could harm someone. Or the same could be said of someone who might be, you know, flying a spaceship over planet Earth to the moon. Uh, you know, so if you want to be an astronaut or a doctor or an engineer, you know, there there are certain careers that I think do benefit from a higher education model. And so even with that, you know, I'm making sure that that I'm jumping through the hoops in terms of making sure my kids are prepared to take a standardized assessment score prior to college, that if they want to go to college, they can. But again, I I feel about the same way about college as as I do about lower education. And if the argument is to be made that that's where a child is going to learn how to socialize, that's where they're going to learn whatever sexual interactions with the opposite sex. That's where they're going to kind of like get their chops, so to speak, like get their feet wet out in the world without mom and dad. Like I told my kids, if, if that's, you know, I've, I've said this, if that's what you want out of college, just to, you know, just to go and see what it's like to socialize for four years and be with your peers, you know, I'll, I'll buy you guys around the world plane ticket. You can go to Amsterdam, you can go to Phuket, Thailand, you can go drink your ass off on the beach, you know, and, you know, but but I'd rather just like be very straight up with them and not try to not not try to mask that uh, in you know with, with the deception that that it's because they're going off to get an education, right? So if they want to go experience the world and get their chops that way, I'll buy them a around the world plane ticket with all that college tuition money, and they can just go go check out what the world's all about for a year.
0: Well, I think those are. Uh, the some of the main attributes of the college experience is that social connection and now when you're looking at the the pricing and the debt that that is incurred um, it it could be appearing as a ripoff, especially when you have that you know a a potential to self-learn when you're uh, on the internet and opening up your laptop lid and, and especially when you have a passion about something. I mean, I'm, I'm seeing this in my own life. Like if I'm passionate about something, I can learn really well and progress really quickly. And if I'm not, I'm going to get unfocused and, and, and discouraged and negative. And boy, we're forcing a lot of kids through a system that's really not appropriate for them, especially when there's already enough uh, heart surgeons and uh, spaceship flyers uh, already.
1: Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, you know, it's, we're always going to need doctors and engineers, and you know, folks who are exploring the depths of the ocean or the depths of space. But uh, I, I think that that a higher education, the college, or university, is sometimes placed on too high of a pedestal. That being said, you know, there are great thinkers and modern philosophers like uh, Naval Ravikant, for example, who says that no matter no matter what industry you go into, right, whether you're working at a paper mill or you're an engineer or you're an author or anything else. There are, there are specific, really, he, he says there's kind of five core skills that you should really do a good job attaining. And roughly they would be, uh, reading well, like, like knowing how to learn via books and other reading matter, writing well, right. Being able to express thoughts in writing, um, persuasion slash rhetoric, right? Like, like being able to simply make an argument effectively, and then, uh, you know, math and arithmetic skills, and finally logic uh, slash computer programming skills, right? And and when you step back and look at those five skills, uh, you know, reading, writing, math, rhetoric, and logic, you're kind of looking at a liberal arts education, right? So I, I would say you know, if anything, if my kids really wanted to go to college and they came to me right now asking for advice and said, "Dad, what's the best degree I could get if I don't know what I want to be, but I but I still want to continue to learn and want to be able to excel once I do decide, you know what wh- what I really want to do with my life, you know how I want to fulfill my purpose in life, I would say go get go get a good liberal arts education.
0: Well, that idea is now gaining more. Momentum, I think. Uh David Epstein's book Range talking about how our our broad experience can actually help us more so than this extreme focus and this specialization that we've uh celebrated for so long in recent decades that you have to get more and more narrow. Um so that's you know, that's interesting. And hopefully the next wave of uh students will will buy into that and the offerings will will be that way as well.
1: Yep. Yeah. yeah.
0: So I agree, man, man. we got this. We got this boundless book. I've been doing my deadlifting with the book itself <laughs> and getting stronger. Um, I'm wondering what the reception has been like, and what are some of the highlights for you of uh, completing another book and then launching it and interacting and, and promoting it.
1: Well, that's a that's a pretty broad question. I mean, it's like a 650-page book, and you know, <laughs> uh, there's lots to be said there. But I mean, originally, I wanted to write a book on on anti-aging and longevity. You know, I'd been about three years ago. I really started to to pivot from a real focus on on performance, muscle gain, fat loss, you know, um, VO2 max, lactate threshold, et cetera, everything that my my previous book, Beyond Training, had been about. And and really wanted to focus a little bit more on, on kind of the ultimate combination of health span and lifespan, whether it be paying attention to a lot of these, t- these tactics of, of you know, centenarians and long-lived lived hot spots around the globe, you know, what kind of... And herbs and spices are they using? What does their family life look like? What does their relationships look like? Um, you know, how are they, how are they sleeping? What are their fasting protocols look like? What are their protein intakes look like? You know, kind of almost like a, a Blue Zones-esque approach to anti-aging and longevity. But you know, I also pay a lot of attention to to the biohacking and kind of like the the modern health sector. So I was looking at you know what a lot of the anti aging hormone clinics in the U.S. are doing. You know, whether it be you know uh, progesterone or, or testosterone or you know DHEA or, or metformin or rapamycin to uh, the use of, of of you know like peptides. A lot of really good research come out of Russia on the use of specific peptides to slow aging and. Reduce all-cause risk of mortality to you know different different nutrients like uh, you know sirtuins such as resveratrol or terestilbene or you know mitochondrial protectants like NAD or NMN or NR. And I just really wanted to weave all that together into a really comprehensive book on anti-aging and longevity. And when I began to write it, you know, and and delve into everything from the blood-brain barrier. To your neurotransmitter balance, to the proper ratio of fast switch to slow twitch muscle fiber for longevity, to relationships, gratitude, and, and spirituality, to um, you know the the immune system, a topic hot at hand right now, you know to to the gut. I realized you know really what I would wind up writing was just kind of a blueprint for for human function as a whole. And so over the course of, of the past three years, you know with – with a lot of research and uh, a lot of time writing, I wound up with about a 1200 page manuscript that we, uh, we edited down to about 650 pages, you know, spanning everything from immunity to gut, to anti-aging, to longevity, to sex, to, you know, to the brain, to smart drugs, nootropics, psychedelics, you know, everything's in there. And, um, and, and yeah, wound up, wound up getting it published. And uh, yeah, obviously had to, had to cut a lot of material out of the book. But what I did when I wrote, when I, when I designed the book webpage was I just created a a specific webpage devoted to each chapter where I put all the content that got cut from that chapter, all the extra podcasts, all the extra articles, all the books that would allow people to take a deeper dive and, and just tried to really take out, you know, all the work that I put together for the past three years and not have to say goodbye to any of those babies, but instead put out the published book and then have a really good Comprehensive website that people get access to uh, once they get the book, if they want to take a deeper dive and any of the, you know any, any of the extra stuff. It's been very well received. You know, most big New York publishing houses wanted me to to dumb it down to like a 250 page you know airport bookshelf paperback and. You know, I put my foot down and said, you know, I want to use the big words. I want the research. I want a functional medicine doc to be able to pick this up and, you know, use it to determine what kind of diet would be most appropriate for their patients. I want the layperson to be able to pick it up and and learn how they can, you know, live past the age of one hundred and be around to throw a football with their grandkids or their great grandkids. And um, and and so, you know, despite the fact everybody told me, you know, book of that magnitude, of that uh, of that size, of that scope was not going to sell well um you know we we hit number one in in just about every health category on amazon, and um the the book has been very well received and then i I followed up with the audible version and the Kindle version, which are now available and so uh so yeah it, it turned out pretty well
0: the audible version did you record the entire book
1: uh i didn't record it i <laughs> i you know because it 's forty eight hours and so there 's about ninety wow. hours of recording time, and I thought you know what. I found a, a wonderful, wonderful, you know, I, I interviewed so many people to record the book and, you know, uh, one of my friends actually named James, he wound up doing the recording. And uh, I just decided, you know what, those 90 hours, yeah, it might be a slightly better if I read it in my own voice, but that's like 90 hours I could spend, you know, formative time with my children versus locked away in a recording studio. And I just kind of made the decision that, uh, you know, that that putting out the audio version you know right away and having it available to people was what was important and so yeah i didn't record it but it's a it's a pretty hefty long recording you know it's like a 48 hour audible book
0: good on james there because that's a lot of that's a lot of work for the voice i've learned that you know i got two or three good hours in me and then you got to come back and do it again the next day and the next day but Oh my gosh! The, the, the presentation of the material is so compelling and, and so nicely organized that I think anyone can you know dip in and out if they're feeling intimidated by reading the whole thing. But I think that's a, a great attribute of it is you can zero in on a certain topic and then you'll get drawn into to reading further. But um, it's not just this big uh, mountain of of junk that you're forcing people to wade through. You did an excellent job with the the organization and the presentation.
1: Well, thank you, man. Thanks. It was. Uh, it was. Uh, you know, I, I was mostly just responsible for the writing and the research and the, the overall scope of the project. And obviously, I'm. Uh, I'm not that great of an artist. You know, you ask me to make a nice plate of food, and, and it generally looks like a, a cat puked on your plate, even though the food tastes pretty good. Um, and so, I, I left the graphic design and the layout out to people who are or are better equipped to do that than me.
0: Well, back to that initial uh, entry point when you described this book of transitioning in your own uh, priori- prioritizing in your goals from peak performance and and getting up on the podium to a pursuit of longevity. And I'm thinking about this a lot. I'm 55 now, Ben. I'm I'm no longer the the spring chicken that uh, you met. I think we were met about seven or eight years ago, uh, but I still have these. <laughs> These peak performance goals. I want to improve my high jump. I want to break the Guinness World Record again. And this entails, you know, some, some hard training, some pushing my body. Uh, I notice I don't recover anywhere near as well as I did when I was younger. Maybe I need to read more of those chapters. But I'm wondering is there an inherent trade off between you know, maximizing your health span and trying to uh, perform great things in athletics and maybe even in other areas of life, like writing an extremely long book probably yeah. kept you up and interfered with your sleep and your meditation time and all that kind of thing.
1: I think that question has been addressed and answered many times before Brad. I mean to be honest with you I mean like you know between you and Mark Sisson and and everybody else who has talked about the trade off between performance and lifespan. I feel like I'd almost just be in an echo chamber basically, you know, re- repeating what has been offset that you know the inflammation and the the um the endocrine disruption and the circadian rhythm disruption and the the mineral loss, the adrenal stress, everything else that comes from pursuing performance at all costs dictates that it's not necessarily synonymous with with health span and lifespan. you know I certainly think there there's something a, a hell of a time in the past twenty years you know competing in Spartan races and you know and uh, you know adventure races and, and everything else to kind of beat my body up and spit it out. but you know what it feels like to just be constantly nursing an injury and, and constantly you know you know, um, you know, having libido that fluctuates up and down and there's not, not where you want to be at or, or thyroid that's dysfunctional or, you know, just constantly not being able to say, for example, you know, engage in ancestral practices like fasting or spiritual practices like, like meditation and silence and solitude and, and breath work, just because, you know, you're just always training, performing, recovering, eating, rinsing, washing and repeating again. And, and I don't think it's any secret anymore. Um, You know, I have an entire, you know, you know, beyond training covered some of that and then boundless gets into it as well. And I know, you know, you and Mark have talked about that a lot as well. So I I think that's really already been addressed and people are pretty aware that if you if you want to be an extreme athlete, then you you gotta have some unnatural means in place to pursue those unnatural ends. And yeah, that might mean sleep disruption. It might mean, you know, Mm -hmm. eating more calories than you should. It it might mean, you know, more inflammation present, chronic low-level inflammation on a consistent basis. It might mean, you know, less relationship time, less community time, less meditation time, less parasympathetic time. And um, so so yeah, I mean I I, I think that, that most people have have kind of understood by this point that uh, you can't have your cake and eat it too. You can't be a professional marathoner, for example, and, and expect to to really maximize your lifespan.
0: Uh, so with your regard to your personal goals now and going into the gym and sweating and, uh, and putting up some good numbers or uh, pursuing whatever goals you have. What is the what is the sweet spot where we can do it right and still have that sense of satisfaction of going for the finisher medal or you know being uh, being being better in your local community basketball league and things like that?
1: I yeah, talk about that in the book a little bit. Um, you know, we know there are certain parameters that track quite well with aging. Uh, for example, walking speed is one. Right, so going out and walking, and not just walking, but walking at a slightly faster pace than your body wants to walk at, and and getting a step goal of 10,000 to 15,000 steps a day, and even embracing the use of of technology initially to do that. Like, there's one thing I talk about in the book called the counter pace, right, which which is very similar to the type of $80,000 device they would use in cardiac rehab to pump blood back up to the heart during the diastolic phase of the heart, but instead, you wear this little heart rate monitor while you're out on a walk. Uh, You could use it for running. And it it the, the heart rate monitor sends like a, a cadence to headphones that you have in that are correlated specifically to your heart rate and your stride rate. So you're trying to get your stride rate to match your heart rate so that the pumping of your legs is pumping at the exact time the diastolic phase of your heart occurs. So you're actually training yourself how to increase your cardiovascular fitness and your metabolic efficiency pretty dramatically when you're using a tool like that. Uh, but we know walking speed is one. We know grip strength is another, right? So whether you're, you're testing with a dynamometer on a, on a regular basis, like once a month to ensure your grip strength is maintaining or improving, or you're doing a lot of, of uh, you know, longer hangs in the gym from a pull-up bar, uh, frequent use of something like a hex bar deadlift, um, farmer's walks, carries, things that improve grip strength. We know, you know that, that's another thing to pay attention to and, and weave in throughout your day. We know that VO2 max, a maximum oxygen utilization, is something that tracks very well with aging. And even with, with as infrequent a training session as once every two weeks, we know that VO2 max can be increased or maintained via maximum sustainable efforts of four to six minutes with about a one-to-one work-to-rest ratio, meaning four to six minutes of maximum sustainable pace where you're breathing kind of hard and then four to six minutes of easy recovery and you know cycling through that for around four to six rounds. Just once every two weeks has been shown to increase VO two max. Uh, lactate threshold is another, like the ability to be able to buffer lactate to convert it into glucose, uh, to be able to buffer acidity. That tracks well with aging, and that's something that can be achieved through more of a two to one work to rest ratio, like doing something like a warm up and a Tabata set on a bicycle three times a week for just you know four minutes, as it would be the length of a, a Tabata set. Um, And then one one very interesting thing is that muscle mass uh, actually is kind of inversely correlated with aging because of the necessary increase in antioxidant activity and the increased need to carry and cool muscle, you know, which is why often you see bodybuilders, you know, having issues with cardiomegaly or, you know, left ventricular hypertrophy or cardiac abnormalities or excess inflammation due to all that muscle. Whereas we know that on the flip side, that smaller, more wiry, fast twitch you know explosive muscle fibers are actually associated with a decreased rate of telomere shortening, and so you know taking more of like a like a kettlebell explosive body weight training type of approach to your resistance training versus a a bodybuilding style approach appears to be a better way to go, especially for for aging um, you know one one that's that's uh, Um, that, that, that's another one that kind of flies under the radar would be mobility and fascial integrity, where I talk in the book about this, uh, like 90 year old track star named Olga, who used to keep a bottle of wine next to her bedside at night, not to drink, but she would actually like roll out her tissues with this big glass bottle of wine and you know, this idea of, of a daily mobility practice, you know, for, for me, you know, I have an entire chapter on beauty and symmetry in the book where I get everything from Ayurvedic practices like tongue scraping and coconut oil pulling to, you know, different postures and different hacks you can keep in your workplace for optimizing pelvic symmetry to, you know, my own practice of these 10 to 15 minute mashups of, you know, doA stretching and core foundation training and foam rolling and lacrosse ball work that I do every single morning for fascial integrity. And so, so really what I, what I lay out in the book are about you know, eight to nine different parameters to hit. And then, you know, especially in the chapters on, on the body, like the symmetry of beauty chapter or the fitness chapter or the fat loss chapter, I, I lay out the systems and the actual you know, sample weeks to actually allow someone to do that. And, you know, you, you can you can easily achieve what I've just described, assuming you're engaged in low-level physical activity throughout the day and postprandial strolls and, you know, occasionally lifting heavy things and play a little sports. You know, we're talking about the actual formal training being anywhere from, you know, 40 to 50 minutes a day, which is doable for most folks.
0: Yeah, it seems like the objective is to... Check these boxes uh, rather than just sit on your butt all day. Um, they're not too daunting and then uh, don't go crazy, don't go overboard. I remember Dr. Phil Maffetone telling me uh, regarding my strength training that I really shouldn't be getting sore after these workouts, and i 'm like, oh crap i 'm doing my, my hex bar deadlifts, and I, I get sore a lot because obviously I'm maybe doing too many sets or I haven't done it as frequently enough to, to build that solid baseline, but um, you know, getting, yeah, but, getting but, a little but I bit
1: mean, in. Like- to play devil's advocate you you can say that but then you can look at another beast who's older like art Devaney, who's a huge fan of two things eccentric training right for the for the muscle fiber damage that occurs and the subsequent satellite cell response that may actually allow for some maintenance of some of those fast twitch muscle fibers and 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 a big buildup of lactic acid during training you know using strategies like uh you know, blood flow restriction training, for example, right? And and those type of things do leave you sore. They do leave you acidic. But when done in moderation, the hormetic response to those results in increased mitochondrial density, increased lactate buffering, increased formation of fast twitch muscle fiber. And you know, and then you look at at a, at a guy like Phil, and he has a smart approach of not beating yourself excessively up with you know something like anaerobic training. But then he might be missing the mark on the fact that, yeah, sometimes you do need lactate. Sometimes you do need eccentric muscle tissue damage. So, you know, I, I think we have to take everything that, that a lot of these, you know, modern uh, exercise advisors or, or so-called experts say with a grain of salt and actually step back and look at the research a little bit. I, I'm definitely not one of those guys who says you're never supposed to hurt. It's never supposed to burn. You're never supposed to be sore by any means.
0: Right, and so I, I imagine you'll you'll have some ebb and flows with your your uh, your routine, where you're going to just honor those simple signals that you want to rest and back off, and then other times you might have some fun and get your competitive intensity going. Uh, but you know, keeping keeping sensible about it, rather than I think we've been socialized or the, the marketing forces have pushed us to. Uh, You know that you should compete in the Ironman to call yourself a legitimate triathlete and it happens to be on this date and you need to buy all this stuff and push yourself too hard and sort of get sucked into uh, the vortex of an overly stressful lifestyle when you consider all the other stressors in life.
1: Right And I'm not against goals for maintaining fitness. For me, having kind of that woo goal of, oh, I want to live a long time. I want to see my grandkids. I want to be healthy. I want to have good bone density. For me personally, you know, maybe it's part of just like my psyche from racing for so long. I, I don't do well with that versus actually having something on the schedule. Like I mm. just completed the Russian kettlebell certification, right? Like a lot of good functional strength training, a lot of like brief bouts of high intensity swinging and snatches and cleans. And I had that on the calendar for you know, for five months. And that kept me pretty honest when it came to, to getting out and doing some things that challenge my body and also force my brain to learn new moves. I actually just signed up for, for the Russian Kettlebell 2 certification because after taking a few weeks off after finishing that cert, I realized, okay, I need, I need something else on the schedule to give me a little icky guide for my training, you know, a little, a little purpose, a little something to, to rip me out of bed in the morning. But, you know, I, I certainly assess that and step back and look at that goal is something that only requires me technically, you know, when it comes to hardcore training to maybe get in like a half hour a day of kettlebell work, as opposed to if I signed up for an Ironman, you know, two, three, four hours a day of training and sometimes longer on the weekends. So I think sometimes the goal you sign up for needs to be taken into account. And it can be something as simple as, you know, I want to be able to deadlift, you know, two times my body weight, or I want to pass a, a kettlebell certification or, You know, something that I think allows you to still have a little bit of drive from a fitness standpoint, but is not going to be like a total evolutionary mismatch from an activity perspective.
0: Nice. I love that. And what about, um, do you have any concessions for chronological aging or do you think with with the boundless approach, we can mitigate almost everything to the point that we can consider being, you can be just as good as you are today in 10 or 20 years?
1: Oh, I mean, let's not fool ourselves. We're all, we're all going to die. Like that, that's, that's the the painful part. You know, a lot of people in the anti-aging sector don't want to hear that, but you know, we, 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 we all are going to degrade as we age. And I, I think that, you know, while things like strength and grip strength, sorry, there's a semi truck about to go by, so it might get loud for a second. Um, while well, well, things like strength and grip strength, et cetera, are going to decrease with age and the best we can do is stave off some of that sarcopenia or osteopenia just by continuing to train and continue to challenge ourselves, well, accepting the fact that we're not going to have the same level of fitness as we did when we were 20 or 30, I think that when you look at things from a biochemical standpoint, and I get into this in the book, you you actually can with... Some, some pretty smart strategies, you know, keep yourself biochemically young. So what I mean by that is we know like uh, NAD, one of our prime mitochondrial protectants, that decreases by about 80 to 90% once around the age of 70. So we can do something like, you know, NAD supplementation or, or strategies that naturally increase NAD, like fasting and the intake of a wide variety of fermented foods, to actually maintain the NAD level, so our mitochondria stay healthy. Another example would be that we know that as you age, pancreatic enzyme production decreases. You have lower levels of proteases. And, and so when you do eat protein, as you age, consuming more digestive enzymes along with the protein is another you know, uh, smart strategy. Um, we know that, that some of the glutathione and superoxide dismutase activity decreases with age. So we can use things like. Uh, not only cruciferous vegetables uh, and, and mushrooms, for example, as glutathione sources, but we can also, you know, do things like, you know, a weekly intramuscular glutathione injection, or the use of a liposomal glutathione supplement on a on a daily basis, or you know, even you know, doing something like, you know, soaking and sprouting broccoli seeds. And so, I, I think that it's actually a little bit easier to keep up biochemically than it is physically. But I think that ultimately. You will know, feel good as your age, you ought to kind of have a little bit of both.
0: Okay, some of your comments have uh, triggered my memory from uh, around March of 2019 when I, when I tuned into the, the Ben Greenfield Fitness Podcast and listened to you get into it with Dr. Paul Saladino and my you know, deepest exposure to the, the carnivore uh, concept and it 's been it 's been uh, you know rolling around in my my head ever since then You guys have done some wonderful uh, follow up shows as well uh, and I keep looking at the the plate of broccoli and then looking at my cold tub. And that comparison that Paul made that um, you know the the hormetic stressor is really what we're what we're uh, touting with this these intake of these high antioxidant foods, and you can get that in other ways, therefore you don't need them, therefore, a lot of the foundation of our uh, our, our notion about healthy eating and the colorful foods of the planet uh is is being challenged and I'm um, just wondering where you're where you're at with this uh, today, here in 2020.
1: Yeah, I have nothing against carnivore diet. You, you can survive on a on a properly comprised, you know, nose to tail diet as long as you include maybe a little extra bone meal. You know, possibly if you're if you're an athlete, some extra ascorbic acid. You know, and uh, um, you know maybe if you're aging, the use of some some enzyme supplements. But you know when you step back and look at things, you got to take into consideration a few things. A, yeah, these foods that that maybe at one time were survival foods, you know, these built in plant defense mechanisms, um, this idea that, that we might not need those foods. The fact is that a, you could disable almost every plant survival mechanism through fermenting, soaking, sprouting, and ancestral preparation tactics that render a lot of lectins and glutens and phytic acid inhibitors, you know, all all these other things You, you can, you can through smart cooking and preparation tactics, disable a lot of those B they become staples in society Right like anywhere you travel in the world, there are wonderful, you know, marineras and casseroles and sauces and salads that have just become a staple of those cultures that people gather around. They're colorful. They provide enjoyment. They provide tradition. Yeah, maybe at one time they could have been things that people turned to when only when they didn't have access to large animals but now they make us happy, right? We gather around those and we, we enjoy them. And, you know, I, I don't know many families that on Thanksgiving just gather around a turkey, right? Because it's it's just, you know, it, it's part of our culture. And I think there's, there's something to be said for learning how to prepare and learning how to enjoy a lot of the different plants that might grow in your garden or in the land around you versus just myopically focusing on meat. And then finally, just, just from an epidemiological standpoint, like, you know, for example, I'm reading a book on the Spokane Indian tribe right now, right? Because I want to get to know a little bit more about the history of, of the Native Americans that lived around here. Um, They had, I mean, they had so many large game uh, or so much large game access. You know, they, they would have that hunting strategy where they'd just like go drive buffalo off a cliff and, and collect the carcasses at the bottom. And they'd hang baskets underneath the Spokane Falls and catch literally like hundreds and hundreds of pounds of salmon per day. And at the same time, not during times of famine, but at the same time as the men were out doing that, the women were out in the fields. They were collecting parsnips. They were collecting root vegetables. They were collecting nettle. They were collecting leaves and plants and mushrooms and berries. And when the men would come back from hunting, they would eat but they would eat the animal foods along with all of those plant foods, not because they were starving and the plant foods were providing them with what they couldn't get from animal foods, but because part of their society had tapped into this idea that those were cultural staples and I would suspect they also knew that they were medicinal staples, that they were things that yeah. that could provide some amount of antioxidant protection or some amount of digestive enzyme support. And so, you know, I, 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 again, I do not argue with the idea that you can, you can get everything you need from a properly comprised, you know, nose to tail, uh, you know, organ meat based diet. But I, I would in no way say that, uh, that, that I, would, I would forego plants for health reasons. I, I think that there's a lot of enjoyment to be derived from them, and I think there's a lot of societal benefit to including plants in the diet.
0: Well, I, I really appreciate how you make an effort to transcend what's really becoming uh, annoying and fatiguing—these diet wars where we're, we're going back and forth and and nitpicking and scrutinizing. And you you uh, set a great line in that podcast you did in India where you said uh, you're on the diet for life, and then referenced the the wonderful the, the now world famous Greenfield family dinners where you you know you open up the purse strings and have fun and enjoy and maybe you're taking in more carbs than would be past the keto guideline but you know taking a step back and looking at this bigger picture of enjoying the entire experience of eating i think it would benefit everyone to focus on that rather than get into the nitpicking
1: yep i i totally agree i mean case in point tonight we're we're having, you know, we're having fish and uh, a wonderful wild-caught salmon. And I'm actually right now in the in the sous vide, I have some sweetbreads going, right? Some thymus gland for a little bit of extra immune system support. And, uh, you know, I'm sous vide those. I'll finish those off with a little grill. I'll dredge them through some coconut flour and cook them up with some butter and some eggs. And we'll have those. We'll have salmon, but we'll also have some carrot fries. We'll have some broccoli and alfalfa and red clover seeds that I've Soaked and sprouted for dessert. I'll have like a, a goat's milk fermented yogurt that I made. That's that's mixed with olive oil, a little bit of cacao powder, a little bit of stevia. So you know, I'm I'm a fan of just like you know eating a wide variety of foods, preparing them properly, and also paying attention to the enjoyment derived from gathering around a wide variety of food as well. Because you know, I, I love Paul and he's super smart. But you know, I invited him out to sushi one night. And, you know, he came out to sushi with everybody else, but he had a little Pyrex glass container with some kidney fat and a testicle in it and that's what he had for dinner and i think that you can certainly do that but it's it it tends to get a little bit restrictive and almost kind of laborious to you know go everywhere with a with a pyrex glass (laughs) container of of suet and balls
0: yes do you mind if i bring these into your establishment oh sure go ahead yeah yeah well i guess whatever uh whatever turns you on and um you know, uh, when you're talking to the the general audience, um, sometimes I get pushback from people that uh, want to say everything in moderation and they get to enjoy their uh, processed foods because it's part of life and it's part of culture. So I think there's um, some distinctions to be had and uh, the more you can educate yourself and realize how, it, how good it feels to eat healthy rather than put junk into your body, then you can make some forward progress. But Uh, boy, you know, the stuff you mentioned there on the, on the evening menu, I don't think anyone would be uh, disappointed leaving that table.
1: Right, right, exactly. Yeah. So, you know, again, nothing against the carnivore diet. It's just, you know, and I I did it for like 12 weeks and, and I did fine on it, but it was just very kind of socially restrictive and, you know, and, and I just, I think that needs to be taken into consideration.
0: Well, I we, mean, we talked about the balance of uh, athletic goals and, and training hard, and then pursuing longevity. And I think um, there's another balance checkpoint to be had here. I'm wondering your opinion on, and that would you could characterize this as um, the extreme devotion to health and the biohacking versus going with the flow and realizing life ain't perfect. And this quote from Bruce Lipton on one of the podcasts. I think he was talking to uh, Luke Story. Uh, you know. Testing that our thoughts affect our cellular function at all times. And therefore, if you start stressing about your EMF exposure uh, while your laptop is uh, firing away and your, your phone's in your ear um, that can in fact compromise your health. So, I'm wondering where you find that balance point. You've also made some great uh, comments about Jessa where, you know, she turns off the lights and goes to sleep and you're unplugging these wires and wearing your glasses and doing all these uh, protocols that uh, you believe is, is boosting your health. And how do we, how do we navigate that trail?
1: Yeah, you can certainly get, get OCD about some of this stuff. And, you know, for me personally, as an immersive journalist and an author and a podcaster, I can make a certain excuse for, for constantly trying out things because I consider part of my job, you know, on my podcast to just report this stuff to folks and, you know, and, and fill people in on what's working and what's not. So I'm I'm always trying a wide variety of things. But, um, you know, I, I think we're doing to strike a balance. And I think that one of the best ways for people to think about this is. What good does it take? You know, what, what good is it to live until you're, let's say 110 if, you know, 30 years of those life are spent in hyperbaric oxygen chambers and with laser lights naked in your office and taking all sorts of supplements. Uh, and all that time you're spending trying to live a long time is time spent away from the family. So at some point, you need to, you need to step back and make sure that you're not. You're, you're, not, you're not using excess time. You're using your time responsibly. And, um, and then the other thing to take into consideration is, you know, I, I do think there's something to be said about Bruce Lipton's idea that uh, behind the biology of belief that what we believe could be harmful to us or what we, what we believe might impact us deleteriously could just manifest itself and that you can almost think yourself into a state of sickness and I, well, I agree that, that emotions are certainly tied to chronic diseases and, you know, we know, you know, like hatred and bitterness and anger, for example, can settle in the bones and potentially manifest as cancer or, you know, or sexual oppression could potentially result in some prostate issues. I also don't think that you can just sit down in front of a Big Mac with supersized fries and a Dr. Pepper and, you know, blast that with positive energy and then mow it down and expect <laughs> that you're going to be just fine. So I, I do think you got to draw the line somewhere.
0: Well, one way to, uh, to, to get there is to, is to grab this book, people. Um, you, you will not be disappointed. Tell us about that website where you can go
1: even deeper. Yeah, it's just boundlessbook.com. That's where you can get the book. That's where we've got all the bonuses. Um, you find it on Amazon, Barnes and Noble, anywhere else, you know, Audible if you want the audio version. And then, uh, you know, I've, I've always got a podcast that I'm adding extra material to at a at com, where you've been a guest before brad and we've had some good discussions over there so i think those, those would be a couple of good resources for people it would be boundlessbook.com and uh, com.
0: well ben enjoy your time uh Laying low. I'm sure we'll be seeing you out there spanning the globe again in the future, but keep doing what you're doing. I appreciate the conversation. We got into some interesting topics that uh, might not be uh, the same as you're, you're hitting on on so many of your podcast appearances, so that was kind of fun to, to go behind the scenes, and I enjoy connecting with you every time, man.
1: Word, Brad. Thanks so much for having me on, and, and keep up the good work on your end ben greenfield boundless book go check it out people thanks for listening
0: hey there primal blueprint listeners did you know that primal kitchen collagen peptides help support hair skin and nails well we offer a variety of collagen products to suit everyone's palate from unflavored to mango pineapple or golden turmeric to our keto matcha or chai tea collagen latte mixes and much more Visit us at primalkitchen.com and start fueling your day with collagen peptides. Hi, folks. Mark Sisson here. If you found your way to the primal path and want to help others live primally too, then visit primalhealthcoach.com to learn how you can join our mission to help 100 million people reclaim their health and how you can turn your passion for wellness into a profitable health coaching career that you love. The world needs health coaches. The world needs you. So visit primalhealthcoach.com today to learn more.